0: Welcome to another episode of A People's Theology. I'm your Theology of Crosser and A People's Theology host, Mason Menega. In this episode, I talk with Wes Daniels. Wes is a religion professor at Guilford College and a recent author of Resisting Empire, the Book of Revelation. Also musically featured throughout this episode is Sister Sinjin. Sister Sinjin is an indie folk duo from Indianapolis. You can get connected with both Wes and Sister Sinjin and their work Today I have Wes Daniels, and Wes is a you're you're a professor, right? Uh, and I always forget how to say the name. It's a great Quaker school. Yeah, uh, Guilford, Guilford College. That's right.
1: Yeah, and yeah, and I'm 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 part. I teach part time, and I'm mm-hmm. full time staff.
0: Great. So you're you're at Guilford, uh, and I'm sure you are, are lots of other things in the world. You're also a recent author of Resisting Empire: The Book of Revelation. Um, Again, I think there's lots of other parts of you. So who is Wes Daniels to Wes Daniels?
1: Uh, yeah, so I am a father. I've got three young kids. Uh, um, I, I've been married to my wife for almost 20 years, okay. which is kind of hard to imagine. Um, I just turned 41. So I've been, okay. you know, kind of doing that whole thing. Uh,
0: Over the hilling
1: yeah yeah like okay, I should you know eat better and exercise more, you know that kind of stuff um and yeah, you know, I think one thing that's important to me is I became a Quaker in when I was in an undergrad, and that has really shaped mm. a lot of my uh the last twenty years or so. so wow. those are all kind of important parts parts to me now
0: I- I'm sure minus your wife, that was probably the best decision you've made in your life. <laughs>
1: Uh, it's hard. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think so.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's great. Uh, so you mentioned to me that this is not your first book. Um, so, you know, you, you've been through the book writing process before. So while writing this book, resisting empire, what is something you learned about the book of revelation that maybe you didn't know about before prior to writing it?
1: I mean, basically everything.
0: (laughs) (laughs) uh the
1: way that i came about writing the book was i and i've told this story a number of times but uh i had the opportunity i was pastoring a quaker meeting in washington state and i had an opportunity to go to a a retreat with parker palmer you know he was leading one of these courage and renewal retreats and he made this offhand remark i think we were asking him questions or something and um he made this remark that he only writes books about things that really baffle him. The, the things that sort of keep him awake at night and he doesn't understand, that's the stuff he gets into. Not, not the mm. things that he feels like he's figured out. And I love that. And so I sort of filed that away. Um, You know, fast forward three or four months, I'm sitting in my office and, I'm, you know, okay, so what should I preach on next? You know, and I, I like to, do usually work through the lectionary or do series. Mm-hmm. And um and I thought, you know, I'm gonna try that thing that Parker Palmer, you know, said it. So what what really baffles me? What's the thing I would like to do the least? And I was like, the book of Revelation. And I was like, as soon as I had that thought, I was like, oh my gosh, I do not want to preach on the book of Revelation.
0: <laughs> <laughs> my, running away I, from that one for yeah, a while.
1: Yeah. My entire church will be gone, you know, like so um so I had really written off the book of Revelation uh, as anybody who's sort of coming out of evangelicalism probably has. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I was in college at the height of the uh, left behind days, oh, yeah. mm-hmm. you know, so it I only had bad associations. Right. Almost and,
0: made you want to be an unprogrammed Quaker, didn't it?
1: I did. Exactly. (laughs) Yes. So, uh, nice one. I see you've
0: done your research. I I know a thing or two. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Actually, I I read your paper. You did do some research. Um, so anyways, uh, a lot, I really, I started from a place of trying to unlearn this, this idea that revelation is about evacuation theology, predicting the end of the world, Mm. you know, uh, doom and gloom. And then, Okay reset what is it actually about and what have there been you know scholars who have looked at it in a different way from that and you know what's possible so that's so i'm not telling you specifically what i learned because it was really like kind of pretty much the whole thing
0: yeah uh so that's something you learned about the book of revelation what was something that you learned about yourself while writing the book again You've already written a book, but maybe there was something in this book writing process that was a little different that uh, revealed something about yourself.
1: Well, I think there's, you know, there's that, that idea of leaning into a place where you have a lot of resistance. So my initial, my initial thought was no way I'm not going there. And then to kind of see that as like a, an opportunity, um, and say, okay, so what's that reaction about? And what if I actually pushed into that? What would I, what would I discover? Um, and so learning that actually, when I stretch myself, when I push myself in, um, areas where I have some internal resistance, I can learn a lot. I can grow. And and another piece is the book was really written over the course of about five or six years. Um, so, uh, a, a, a good portion of it started out as sermons, Um, hmm. uh, but there's a lots of other parts of it that as I once I kind of, you know, did the initial preaching on these, these texts, uh, I started traveling around and people would invite, you know, okay, there's a Quaker pastor who's teaching on revelation. Well, that's kind of interesting. Right. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, so. Uh, I would go into different communities and teach it, that sort of thing, and get feedback. What were the questions? What did people resonate with? You know, and so it sort of clarified over time. So that process was um, was important for me. A kind of you know, a, I think there was sort of a dialogical process in the whole thing uh, mm-hmm. as well. It didn't just sort of come out once and here it is, you know. Right.
0: How did your relationship with the book of Revelation change? Uh, you mentioned that uh, prior to writing it, you had this aversion to the book of Revelation. Uh, is it your favorite book now in the Bible?
1: It's possible, actually, oh. strangely. Um, yeah, I think my relationship with it changed in that it actually... so. You know, I said something about we're, most of us, if we have any relationship with, with the book of Revelation, it's in the context of, uh, you know, predicting the end of the world. Right. And um, that that is a way of trying to, like, forcing its relevance into our day and age. Um, the thing that is different for me is that once, when you go back and you actually you know, read about the original communities and, okay, how would they have heard this text? How would they have understood it? Um, I think that that actually makes it more um, relevant for us today, but in a very different way. Mm -hmm. Um, So the basic argument is that it isn't about predicting the end of the world. It's about how marginalized faith communities in the, you know, the end of the first, you know, Ninety one hundred common era, um, how they were to resist the Roman Empire, and whoever's writing it, John is, You know, we identify him to be. He's writing from. You know, I I tell my students it's basically like Azkaban. You know, it's he's writing from Alcatraz. It's a little island. He's a prisoner of the state. Right. He is writing to his seven churches. It's a letter, um, and he is telling them. How they um can resist and not assimilate into the Roman Empire, well, that has surprisingly or not surprisingly, depending on your view, uh, a lot of relevance for us today, especially those who I think identify as Christians and live in the American Empire and have are a parts of a part of traditions that have assimilated into the empire um, and what does it look like for us it's going to be different than it was then in some ways but what does it look like for us to uh, resist and not go along with the tactics that um, the empire puts forward
2: (laughs)
0: You begin the book by prefacing that in order to read the Book of Revelation in a way that is liberating and resistive of empire, uh, one has to reorient their hermeneutical lens. What particular lens do you suggest is needed uh, in order for that to happen?
1: Well, so one part is becoming aware of the lenses we bring. Mm. We all bring lenses. um, I. When I work with my students, we, we do kind of three three layers. We look at like what are my own social identities, kind of how do I present myself to the world, what are my commitments. Um, so I may have uh, a commitment that to a particular political cause, or a particular community, Mm. or fan group, or I mean, really, whatever. Um, And that may or may not align with my social identities. And then there's a third layer, which is what are my communities? What are my traditions that I'm a part of? And all of those impact how we go back to scripture and understand it. Um, So I think that's the first step. And then the second step that I suggest in the book is a liberation theology lens really. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, to, to put it simply, uh, but basically suggesting that we, by reading it from the perspective trying to read it as best as we can from the perspective of the original hearers, what we're doing is recognizing that they themselves were marginalized. They were those who were occupied, mm-hmm. those living under, uh, you know, uh, an imperial regime, and that is a very different way. I mean, especially as a white straight male in the United States, that is not how I what what I bring to the text right. on my own. You know, I mean, so I have to do a lot of listening and kind of taking my cue from others to try to get into that sort of perspective. But that's the perspective that will completely subvert and change the interpretation of revelation from mm-hmm. uh from what we're used to in in our day and age through left behind and all that sort of thing. Mm-hmm.
0: One of the things that I I found really great uh and it's sort of towards in the, the middle of the book your your quakerness really shines through uh in in chapter 4 How does the religion of the lamb, as you put it, relate to a theology of the cross, uh, which you might be familiar with, you know, Lutheran theology and and that kind of (laughs) emphasis in that world?
1: Yeah, so I use, um, I draw a lot on uh, the work of uh, Wes Howard Brook, who has done, um, who's a great biblical scholar. Also, he has a great name. Uh, he, his name's also Wes. So, you know, he, uh, us have to together, right. Uh,
0: <laughs> really a marginalized group in, in the world. Right.
1: <laughs> so he are, he, he basically suggests that within the Bible there are, you know, two main religions, the religion of empire and what he calls the religion of creation. And I kind of reinterpret that idea to be the religion of the lamb that was mm-hmm. slain because, Uh, at least in terms of what Revelation is, is talking about, the lamb that was slain is the central figure of the text. And I think that basically what the writer is saying is, if you forget everything else that I've said, I want you to have this image of a lamb that was slain, who's alive, who's victorious, embedded in your moral imagination forever. Mm. Like, let that be the thing that guides you and directs you. Um, and, you know, the way, I guess the way that I understand that is um, a, a saying is that there is no need. So, so the religion of empire needs scapegoats. Right. It needs, it needs enemies uh, to, and that's what creates its boundaries, its borders, and uh, it uses scapegoats to actually reinforce its own identity, right? And it's also a way of not really dealing with the main issues. We, we cast out this group of people. You know, we put up borders to block these people, that sort right. of thing. Um, the, what I think Revelation, Revelation is unveiling that that is, um, that's a ruse. And here is the lamb who was a scapegoat and what, what, you know, this lamb sort of, I think symbolizes is that the scapegoat is innocent. Mm. The scapegoat actually has nothing to do uh, with the, the main issues. The main issues are between you and I. Mm. Um, uh, God wasn't the one who demanded the sacrifice. It was humans who demanded the sacrifice. Well, this is mm. sort of drawing on some of James Allison's work. Mm. Um, and and so in other words, I, I'm sort of suggesting that Revelation is saying we have no need as the church for scapegoats because we see through that mechanism mm-hmm. as being false. And so we do not need scapegoats to create our community. Right. We we can we can create community without being over and against others. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that that's what the cross is about, is actually unveiling how that mechanism itself is um, is a falsehood. Mm-hmm. It doesn't actually um, get us anywhere, right. and we don't need it.
0: Yeah. It reminds me a lot of uh, Peter Rollins has this whole thing, and maybe he's riffing off of somebody else probably as knowing him, but uh, <laughs> he has this thing where he says, if he's forced to have an atonement theory, it's that it's the end of all atonement theories, right? Like it's the that Jesus's death was this like final sacrifice, uh, or was the 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 it, it is the crucifixion that shows the absurdity of sacrifice and atonement, right? Yeah. So yeah. that's kind of where he's getting. At. It reminds me a yeah. lot of how that how that so easily if you think of atonement in that way, or you think of Jesus's death in that way, it's very translatable to then thinking about how um, we often use scapegoats in our empire. Um, so, and if we understand Jesus's death in a particular way, it actually sort of uh, negates us from having to think of uh, people in that as a scapegoat.
1: Absolutely yeah I mean i think I really think that this is this is critical because Christians throughout most of human history have gotten themselves tied up with scape the scapegoat mechanism with scapegoating mm-hmm. folks, and um I think the most poignant uh, or one of the most poignant um, Uh, works that at least brought that to my attention was James Cone's cross and the lynching tree. Oh yeah. And the, and the ways in which it was the church and Christian white Christians who were, um, you know, uh, lifting up supporting and doing lynchings and Mm -hmm. slavery and all of this stuff. And, and so, I mean, the, the, the really traumatic, Besides all of that being traumatic, the the sad part is that we actually have a theology that says you will not side against the scapegoat. Right. The one who we you know pr- we say we worship was himself a victim of empire. So how could you participate in that sort of thing? Yeah. Um, and uh, the other thing I wanted to say about the scapegoat, real quickly, is going back to the the Quaker tradition. Early Quakers understood. Um, the lamb that was slain to be really um, also about what it meant to be a community of practicing nonviolence. Right. And um, so they're, they're, you know, sort of hard to imagine, or that's a very unusual interpretation of revelation, which is often used (laughs) to justify violence and violence of the empire. In fact, yeah. So this is, you know, again, when you start to read it from a more, you know, marginalized or liberation perspective, you get the opposite yeah, of that.
0: Yeah, certainly opens up the text in, a, in an entirely new way.
2: Near the night sky, clouded by suspicion and regret. There's a street light where we met hundred hearts that happened.
0: Um, speaking of Quakers, one of the things that Quakers are really known for is their sort of radical approach to the priesthood of all believers. Mm-hmm. Um, how or why is the Quaker approach to priesthood of all believers a way to understand a liturgy that's informed by revelation? We'll talk a little bit about this towards the end of the book.
1: Well, that's a great question. Um, <clears throat> okay, so... So I I suggest that uh, Revelation is so it's doing four things I thought, at least four things um, you know it's unveiling the scapegoat mechanism uh, it's unveiling imperial economics which is about the mark of the beast mm-hmm. it's um, it's unveiling um, this kind of social order and Revelation talks about the multitude. And then the fourth thing is, it is showing how liturgy itself um, can be either a part of the religion of empire, that the religion of empire has its own liturgy. I mean, for heaven's sake, watch any of the impeachment proceedings, (laughs) getting up, sitting down, everybody has their parts, you know, I mean, it's, it's liturgical. Yes. I mean you you put you put robes and some crosses and some folks' hands and it looks like church. I yeah. mean there's you know, a thing that they all
0: say together and yeah.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, so there's this there is a, a ritualized way in which we um have shape we work to shape a certain ideology, community, whatever. Well, there is also a liturgy of resistance, a liturgy of the lamb. And mm-hmm. um so, so you know what does that look like um uh, there is one of the really interesting things is that there's um in revelation there's multiple instances of silence it actually talks about uh long extended periods of silence in revelation Um uh, only a quaker would catch that you know of course
0: they would um, yeah my, my loud mouth hasn't <laughs> <laughs> um yeah,
1: another thing that's very interesting um is that the liturgy that is described, the worship scenes that take place in heaven, they always have the lamb and the victims of empire in the center, mm. and everyone else is surrounding them. So I mean there's passages there's you'll passage say, "Who are these who are robed in white but drenched in blood? Those are the victims of empire. Mm. Those are those who have been crushed, oppressed lynched by empire they are in the center of that liturgy Mm. which i mean is deeply moving and what it what would it look like to be the kind of community that centered the victims of empire in our worship right um and so okay so there's so that's a significant aspect um, and then another significant aspect, this is going back to some of James Allison's work. Um, are you familiar with James Allison? I'm not at all. Yeah, uh, he's a, a Catholic priest who is gay. He's out. He um, has written some really fantastic stuff. He has an article called Worship in a Violent World, which I cannot recommend enough. Um, and in there, he talks about, he he actually, he doesn't use exactly the same language, but he's talking about essentially, a liturgy of empire and a liturgy of resistance. And he talks about how uh, he uses the example of Nuremberg rallies as a liturgy of empire, because what it does is it's sort of whipping people up into a frenzy against scapegoats. Mm -hmm. And he says, you know, the the liturgy of the church or the liturgy of resistance um, does exactly the opposite in fact it should be boring because what it's doing is it's actually bringing you back into the present moment it's making you instead of distracting you or extracting you from your from your life from your issues it should be making you more aware of the suffering of your neighbors mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and so you know this goes then into the sort of the quaker piece where if a, if what you do for worship is complete You know, silence. uh, Or I'm I'm a program friend, so I so we have singing, and but we but we have 25, 30 minutes of silence in our worship. So if you have extended periods of quiet to reflect, to to open yourself up both to what the Spirit might say to you, but also what uh, what anyone in my community who's sitting around may be led to share. That is a way of opening yourself up to your community to feedback it's not just sort of you know going through the motions but it's but it's also a way of trying to sharpen your awareness to the world around you which i think is has a very powerful and needed uh, practice
0: Today I have Elizabeth and Caitlin, and uh, not only are Elizabeth and Caitlin fellow classmates who I just found out and th- th- this is really embarrassing on my on my end, but I just found out we've actually all had a class together, and i wouldn't i now I was just telling Caitlin, if I saw the back of your head right now, I would probably recognize that as a zoom student uh zooming into like an in person class but uh but yeah the the your the front of your faces are less familiar um, but nonetheless we're all classmates going to the same seminary. Uh, but you also both are in this sort of duet, in this little folk band that I, I really have enjoyed it so far. So with that said, um, you're all seminary or seminarians. You're all uh, like, you know, you Caitlin, you just had your son. So you all have family lives. Uh, you all probably have jobs of some sort. Right. Like you're all really busy. So how do you like you balance being in this band as well? I mean, it feels like there's a lot, uh, a lot of things going on in your lives. It's an interesting mix to add that in.
3: Yeah. It, yeah. <laughs> We're always juggling. <laughs> uh, I, I know for me, I, Caitlin can speak for herself, but um, I really just can't plan ahead. I just do what is right <laughs> in front of me. Like, and I prioritize and then I, I make a little list and I just keep on walking and marking things down.
4: For, for me, music has been a way to process a lot of stuff, uh, both in school and in life. So what's funny is we have made more music since being in seminary than before. We met, we knew each other before we started this project beforehand. But uh, oddly, since starting seminary, it amped up quite a bit. Um, Partially because I think we were in the same space together more often. And then um, it just gave us a lot of material to work with.
0: Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about that that particular material that you're just working with that for both of you is inspiring a lot of songwriting and there's sort of a proficiency even, it sounds like, to it?
4: Yeah. So for um, we have two recent projects and we actually recorded them both at the same time last summer. Um, And one of them, Face of the Deep, is based on Christina Rossetti's poetry. She was a Victorian poet and um, author, and she wrote a, like, 500-page commentary on the Book of Revelation, Hmm. um, which she called Face of the Deep, a devotional commentary on the apocalypse. So we... That's wonderful. it's a wonderful. Is that text. something
0: you? Is that a text you encountered while you were in seminary, or is that something you knew about prior to seminary?
4: It was um, something that someone sent, sent to us and asked us to to look through because they knew we were in seminary, knew we were interested mm-hmm. in kind of those kinds of themes, but also um, just the fact that it's a, a a woman artist also dealing with spirituality and theology, and so I thought it would be a good fit for us in our current stage. Which it. Seems to have been a very good fit for us. We went through her text and she has commentary and then interspersed through the commentary on the book of Revelation, our original poems, mm. based on different texts. So we pulled those out and set them to music. And that became the face of the deep EP. Huh. That's so, a- yeah, just that like intersection of life and work and art and theology that lined up well with our stage of life and with Rossetti's work was really fascinating.
0: Can you talk a little bit about the new album then? Like, is there, are, is there any material, are there any particular theologies or even texts that maybe contributed to this uh, very recent release?
3: Uh, yes. <laughs> Um, so the newest one, we we were kind of looking more at um, less devotional material, thinking about uh, relationships a little bit more, and um, writing. Uh, we recorded some songs that we had been in production um, and songwriting. You know, we'd been working on for a long time, um, and most of them have to do with marriage or the different seasons of relationships. Um, uh, so we kind of broke it down and it conceptually between like, you know, winter. there's a spring, there's a summer, there's a fall, you know, and, uh, and all of those are on a cyclical rotation for any long-term relationships. A so, um, couple of, I mean, there's always material that sneaks its way in there. It's not, uh, it's not central, you know, it's not, uh, you know, the way Face of the Deep was a particular text that we set to song. Um, this is more, um, everything we've been reading for the past few years <laughs> like, mm-hmm. and, and reading simultaneously because we're taking all the same classes and, um, absorbing the, you know, the same material and the same teachers and that kind of thing. It all kind of processing
4: it differently.
3: <laughs> yes. Processing it very differently, but it works its way into your psychic network and you're thinking about these same things and kind of resonating on the same mm-hmm. issue. And, um, and so it's not explicit in there. There there's really only one. Uh, that I can think of explicit uh, reference to a, a text, and it was Saint Catherine of Siena, um, mm. and a, about it's in it's in a song called Water or Fire um, about um, the passion. <laughs> I'll just leave it at that. The 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 kind of the the passion of um, being drawn to. Simultaneously to what is forbidden and and or what brings death and what brings life and Mm. uh, So you can you can interpret that on your own scale right.
0: that's great <laughs> what does the writing process between both of you kind of look like yeah i i think back to like blink 182 and i know that um whoever kind of wrote a song like they kind of got the lead for the lyrics or it, not only the lyrics but also the vocals so like if tom DeLong was the one that wrote a song then he would kind of get the bulk of the the vocals um and you know vice versa with with mark um is it a similar process for you all or do you have a very different process of like whoever writes the song may or may not get the vocals on it may not get the vocal lead like what does that look like
4: i think you know we're exactly like blink 182
0: (laughs) (laughs) in more ways than one
4: (laughs) we um on on only one the ep that we released on friday um there are four songs and we each sing on two of them and those are representative of the ones that we each
2: wrote
4: mm. Most often the way we write is um, we, we write a song and then we bring it to the other person and kind of tweak stuff, but it's mostly there. Um, we've co-written like from beginning to end a couple times, but um, because as you've noticed, our lives are pretty full and busy. Um, usually we we come with our thoughts processed through music and then present it to the other person and then kind of make it ours. but because um, we have we have kind of a unique vocal chemistry. Our voices are very different, and so we mm-hmm. we draw that out intentionally, um, and we we leave space for each voice to do its thing, and so sometimes one voice is leading. Um, and we're really intentional about making sure the other voice is supporting. Um, so, yeah, that's our process.
0: I love that. Uh, with the new release, is there any like plans on playing some local shows? Or I mean, is there even any ambition to to play around the state even a little bit?
3: It's. Dependent upon our lives,
0: <laughs> <laughs> sounds like that's a that's a main theme
3: <laughs> right uh yeah, no, I mean, we don't have the ability to do tours or anything at this point. Um, we are planning a show in April um, but yeah, you know what seminaries like too, mm-hmm. and um out of family on that, so we're we're not planning any travel at this point.
0: okay, great. Yeah. Well, I've really enjoyed it. I, I'm a not only is it great that there's sort of this connection between all of us uh, going to the same seminary and taking similar classes and that sort of thing, and so we're kind of having that common experience. Um, and so when I'm listening to this I'm sort of like listening for those particular moments where I'm like okay not only do I have a connection because I know these people but uh, but there's also that connection that we hold a common seminary experience together and it's just really beautiful I, and on top of that the music's really lovely I, I really have appreciated it um, and I think you're right um, Caitlin about like I, d- I didn't really think of it until you articulated it that there really is a distinct vocal difference between you two and you both are able to really, um, harmonize that well. Um, even if you're not trying to harmonize, but you're able to like bring that into harmony well. Uh, and I really appreciate that. Like there's this sort of dissonance, but also this harmony that's going on because your, your, your vocal deliveries just really match up well, I think. So uh, all that to say, I really enjoyed it. One of the things that I find interesting is this book wasn't published all that long ago. It was published last year. Um, so it's fairly recent. Nonetheless, lots of things have changed in our world since, uh, the (laughs) book has been published. Uh, what are things that you would like to maybe add or subtract from the book now in light of the things that have changed in the world since writing it?
1: Oh, goodness. Um, Well, one thing right off the bat is um, there is a whole, and I'm actually kind of going back through and starting to develop this. And I don't know if eventually we'll shove it in here or if it'll be in something else, but um, the earth and animals and water and the sort of created order, the non human order plays a really important role throughout the book of Revelation. And mm-hmm. I will say that I'm I'm I didn't miss it because I talk about the religion of creation and that being an important part, mm-hmm. but I I missed the part where it actually has agency. So what's really interesting, I didn't catch this until uh I, my the meeting where I attend, um uh, I was I, I get to preach, you know, somewhat regularly there. And um they asked me to preach for Advent, which is always, uh, I, love, I love preaching during Advent. But the pastor asked me if I would preach on Revelation. <laughs> you know, your typical Advent yeah. Revelation sermon. Um, and uh, actually, Revelation 12. So she, she, she suggested this, uh, if I would look at Revelation 12 as it for, for Advent. And it is about um, this woman who is pregnant and is about to bear a child and this dragon who is looming over the woman, waiting to devour her child. And um, as soon as the child is born, God whisks the child away and the woman runs into the wilderness. And then uh, Michael and the dragon have the, and all the angels they have this huge battle, which is, you know, okay. So this is all about origin story. Um, and, uh, but later on down in that, that, chapter 12 it says the earth came to the aid of the woman what mm. <laughs> you know and and so this sense that the earth has agency and that the earth is on the side of liberation it mm. is working with god to aid in liberation and freedom from empire is like, whoa, okay. I got to like, I got to back up and like kind of go back through this. Getting a little
0: processing and white heady in there, Wes.
1: (laughs) Perhaps, perhaps. Um, so, so that's, I think that's a big thing. I, I, you know, I'm I'm well aware of, um, Ched Meyer's work around watershed discipleship and Mm -hmm. folks who are doing work around that. Um, a lot of the, um, you know those sorts of conversations are i'm interested in and um and kind of where where does the earth play into all of this and how does how does the church think about that i mean there are lots there there are ways in which um there there i could have addressed more issues around i would say definitely what african american uh communities are dealing with people of color refugees um, people in LGBTQ uh, communities, that sort of thing. There are specific instances since the book has been published that you know is just right. exacerbating folks in all of those identities yeah. uh, that you know we could we could sort of dive much deeper into. But I but I think my hope is that there's enough to sort of play around with. That that folks can um, can add to that and mm-hmm. maybe take it further.
0: Mm-hmm. Might be obvious, but how do you see this book being inspiring and liberating theological work?
1: Yeah, I mean, I I really hope that uh, I hope that we can by recovering Revelation, it is. It's sort of shocking. It's like if you can recover revelation for a liberatory theology, um, then surely you can recover other other texts as well. Um, But more than that, uh, I think that it has a lot to do with what is happening right now Mm -hmm. and what does it mean for the church or, or just people of faith it doesn't have to be Christian but for people of faith of, of all faiths to resist Empire um, to not go along with what it, how the Empire plays its games um, but to uh, seek to create our own um, alternative beloved communities and as revelation calls it the multitude and um, you know, I think that that to me is really exciting that we could be working on that together. Mm-hmm. Um, I I had some I had opportunity to do a little bit of study with um, folks at Union Theological Seminary. I didn't go there, but um, I went I went to Union for a conference and uh, the poverty the poverty initiative, folks behind the Poor People's Campaign, you know. um, uh, did, did a, like a three or four day study. And one of the things that really caught my attention there, and that was before writing this. So it really influenced, I think, the, the direction that that I went here, um, is is that they, they, you know, their, their idea is if you want to end poverty, the Bible is maybe perhaps the only piece of mass media we have that speaks positively of the poor. You turn on the news, you anywhere, Interesting. We're, we're talking negatively about, you know, it's your fault. You did something wrong. The Bible is, and, and it is global. So it is a thing that we have globally that speaks positively about the poor and our responsibility to end poverty. Mm. And so if you want to end poverty, you better know something about the Bible and be able to show up in all kinds of churches and give an anti-poverty lesson, you know, mm-hmm. sermon or Bible study. And that's actually how we can mobilize folks. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what, uh, Reverend William Barber and Liz O'Harris Harris, and those folks who are all connected in are doing, um, in right. fact, they just had a, um, I forget the name of it, but this weekend, they had a, a like a people's theology thing, uh, that they were doing down here in Durham, uh, so, so it's that sort of thing. And, it, and I think that we can do that with revelation
0: as well. Mm, that's great. Uh, last question, Wes, uh, how can listeners get connected to you and your work?
1: Yeah. Uh, you can jump on Twitter. CW Daniels is my handle and my website is gatheringinlight.com. Mm. So those are kind of the two easiest places.
0: So great. Well, yeah. thank you so much. Uh, I really enjoyed reading the book. Uh, over the last year or so, I've really gotten into a lot of apocalyptic theology. Yeah. Um, and so, and like you, yourself, I, I kind of grew up under this assumption uh, about a particular interpretation of Revelation. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then over the recent years, uh, especially with my interest in apocalyptic theology, I've really sort of rediscovered a love for Revelation and books mm-hmm. like yours uh, really have contributed to that. So I thank you so hey, much thank for, you. for having such a wonderful work and it's so insightful and very accessible and I really enjoy all of it.
1: Thanks. I, I appreciate that and appreciate you uh, having me on to talk about it.
2: Far off wood, return in search of nectar and foam
0: If you'd like to connect with both West and Sister Sinjin and their work, you can find links in the episode description. Thank you again for listening to another episode of A People's Theology. If you liked what you heard, please give the podcast a five-star rating and review. Also, please support the podcast at my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mesa Menega. And remember, friends, go and be the theology to the world that inspires and liberates.
2: Cool. Por...